Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. This year, the conference is taking place June 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2020. We'll interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software projects inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Mac DevOps Podcast, where we have awesome guests every week. This week, we have Lisa and Kevin on the East Coast. How's it going, Lisa? That's pretty good. It's a little later over this side. Um, I really want those chocolate brownies that made their way into your room, but I'll make do with my pineapple juice. <laughs> Kevin, how's it going? It's going pretty well. A um, little chilly tonight, but nice and cozy where I'm at. Oh, we get to play a conversion game. What is it in? Is it Fahrenheit? What 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 measurements do you guys use to measure temperature? Yeah, Fahrenheit or Imperial or. Personally, I like the metric system. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, today was I really hot in Vancouver. We had it was ten degrees, maybe eleven degrees Celsius. Um, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Maybe forty. I don't know. Is that warm? <laughs> it's warm-ish. It was sunny. It's been sunny and beautiful here in southern Vancouver. <laughs> southern Vancouver. <laughs> the other Vancouver. The other Vancouver. Vancouver, Washington. That's just weird. I mean, crazy. I mean, awesome. Okay. It's a place to be. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks, JD, for joining us. And thanks to JD for doing all the technical things in the background to make this podcast work. Thank you, JD. My pleasure. <clears throat> So today on the podcast, we have two awesome speakers that we've invited to Mac DevOps. Um, and uh, why don't you guys introduce the cool topic that we're planning to talk about at the next Mac DevOps? What were you, what are you planning to talk about? We're planning to talk about remote work. Uh, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Redox. The, the first company I've worked for, which we actually have a primarily remote workforce or distributed as, as we call it. And that's brought a whole lot of new challenges that having previously worked in corporate offices that I had to learn some new tools and learn some new procedures. And then on Kevin's side, the additional support and administration work that comes with that as well. Yeah, I come from a very traditional IT background and having a completely distributed workforce, there is no central office, there is no server, there is no corporate network. So IT kind of have to rethink IT a little bit um, from a lot of the things that you sort of take for granted when you work for traditional, um, you know, like most companies actually, not even traditional, but most companies. So we've come up with a couple of cool ideas to make some of those things happen. Because um, like Lisa said, we have to cover both security and just normal IT kind of things. And- um, The perimeter is my desk. <laughs> <laughs> So what are the, some of the normal things that you guys are dealing with in your day-to-day, -day? Uh, Lisa? Well, for me, I recently made a switch into security engineering from being a systems engineer. So not only was taking on this role, I had new responsibilities that, to be honest, I wasn't quite as confident with as doing the other work I'd done for many years, but also to be able to do that for what is probably almost 100% remote workers. So that meant initially I was a one-person show. I was doing support. 
I was doing systems administration, I was doing security work. So it relies a lot on the different tools and data collection. Uh, for me, a big part of that was starting to learn Splunk and being able to aggregate the data from all different tools together to get that view into the endpoint that the security team needed. Then we're really lucky to bring Kevin on board. I still can't believe he actually agreed to to join us. Um, he <laughs> left a very prominent organization to come to our smaller one. Um, we're very happy to have him. And so he then was able to take on some of the systems administration work, mostly with Jamf and a lot of the support tasks. But that also brings with it dev even device provisioning. I think if you have an office, you probably have your version of a genius bar. We, do, we don't have that. So how do we support people? And Kevin's working on part of that as well. Try not to give away everything in our talk because <laughs> then nobody's going to come to the conference. Uh, it's good to have a good overview of what we're talking about, give people an idea of all the cool topics that we're going to be covering. I mean, so Kevin, what, what are you uh, working on? Well, we're pretty lucky that Apple, we're, we're, we're primarily right now pretty much 100% uh, Mac shop. So all of our employees have Macs, which because Apple's been designing with the consumer in mind for a long time, it's the whole point of open, the, you know, have the box shipped to you, open the box, turn the computer on, start, you know, there is no step three, you know, whatever the commercials used to say. And that fits in perfectly when you have a remote or distributed workforce, because you know, we drop ship the computers directly to our employees. Um, and then because we use Jamf, we're able to use MDM and sort of tailor that initial enrollment period. Um, and so it's it's kind of a cool experience. You know, we're, we're trying to make sure that they're having that Apple experience when they get their computer and they turn on like, wow, everything just kind of works. And it's like, okay, good. There's a lot of hard work behind the scenes to make everything just work. Um, and so Jamf is a big part of that for us. Um, a lot of the additions that Apple and Jamf have put into the enrollment process, you know, DEP, Device Enrollment Program, or whatever Apple's calling it, the flavor of the day, um, <laughs> that makes a lot of this possible. Um, and then Jamf hooking into a lot of those things just sort of makes it really smooth from an enterprise, you know, sort of standpoint. So that's really the linchpin of, of our uh, remote workforce is, I can manage computers as effectively, no matter where they are in the world, it doesn't matter if they're on a corporate network. In fact, based on previous experience, it's actually easier when they're not on a corporate network because you don't have to worry about firewalls and proxies and all this foolishness. Um, the computer's on a network, it can talk to Apple, it can talk to uh, Jamf, we're good to go. So um, it's, I've been surprised it's gone as smoothly as it has, you know, knock on wood. Yeah, it's definitely exciting times. I mean, the first time I tried DEP or now Apple Business Manager, um, yeah, I had to remember to get off the corporate network, join my uh, my iPhone hotspot to to join this new machine that I got, and then basically it could get its uh, you know MDM uh, profile, and it goes, oh yeah, I'm part of DEP, no problem, and then self enrolled, and I was like, that's pretty magical. It was almost as exciting as that time when I first started NetBoot and I saw this globe spinning and I was like, oh my God, we're doing it, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, and so that's half of the equation, right? So the second half of the equation is what happens after everybody gets their computer and it's like, wow, it just works and everything's great. And so that's where we kind of need a synthesis between you know, security and um, IT to make sure that everything runs smoothly. So security is sort of in the background 
and IT is a little more in the foreground. So when security is working perfectly, it's just kind of there. And so that's why if we use remote tools and um, a lot of the stuff that Lisa has set up, it just kind of works. We can monitor these things to make sure that everybody's working you know, the way that it's supposed to. MDM is great, but not everything's covered by MDM. So Lisa's done a lot of work so that you know the management side of things I can handle and works pretty smoothly um, for the most part. <laughs> um, they are computers, so they never work 100% all of the time. Um, but I know that we have a strong, you know, uh, reporting structure in place that Lisa's done a lot of work getting that set up. And I think that's like the two sides of the coin. And, um, you know, I like to say when I've worked in past, you know, places that I've worked at, security and IT, let's just say it wasn't a synthesis. <laughs> it was not always the best um, sort of working arrangement. Um, and so Lisa and I have worked really hard to try to make sure that we have that sort of working relationship, that everything works together and we don't compete with each other, you know, because it's easy to set a security setting with MDM and then that'll conflict with something that I'm setting on a management side of things. So um, I think we're really lucky that we're working hard to do that. And because we do have a remote workforce, it has to work because nobody can walk to somebody's desk and fix it. So yeah. Tell us um, more about the security part, uh, Lisa. So you're spending your days in Splunk or looking through Splunk logs or what else have you got going? Or is there like five or six agents on the machine reporting 500 things or uh, 5,000 things? actually what we're trying to avoid. Uh, I'm sure we've all worked in environments where there's a heavy profile of agents and then that makes it miserable for both the user and typically everybody else, especially if the agents conflict with each other. So we're actually trying to use as few agents as possible. And then rather than look for a single tool that might try to do everything, but maybe not do everything as well as we need, we're trying to aggregate multiple sources of data. Uh, for us, using a CM made sense for that. So we're able to pull data in from Jamf. They've got a Splunk add-on. We're able to use tools like Command Reporter, which uh, I'm still learning how to interpret all the data from command report, but so far that's been really useful to see the different administrative events that are taking place. Uh, our next gen AV luckily also integrates, so we're able to get the malware and threat data in. Uh, other data that we're pulling in is also the vulnerability scanner. So by aggregating all these data sources, we're slowly building out dashboards that will give us a full view into the state of each device and events that are worth looking into. And it's still a work in progress and it's gonna be that way for a while, but we think that rather than have another tool for security, we'll provide the data that security needs with what we have because most of that data that we need to see is actually already there. It's just not available to the team. So let's put it in the tool that the security team want to use rather than make them go and learn all these other tools as well. Sounds like there's a lot of data to go, go through. And I mean, they always talk about this magical single pane of glass. You know, you have so many different apps reporting different things and you have different dashboards and monitoring. Um, how do you prevent, um, you know, from multiple monitoring tools, how do you prevent 
emails that are important or you know events that are important to go into an email that's just being managed and not looked at or you know errors that are being overlooked um, are you using the the logs primarily as an after an event or do you have active monitoring or how do you manage to survive all that so some of that's still a work in progress our company also heavily uses slack so some alerts for uh, different parts of the business, be it the production side, go through to Slack, and then there'll be a team with someone triaging those alerts and responding, or tickets generated and uh, tasks assigned that way. Because uh, we're always in Slack talking to each other. That's one way it's done. Of course, we have a paging system uh, for things that are urgent. The endpoints perhaps aren't necessarily as critical as what the production services of Redox might be. So we don't typically wake, wake somebody up over an endpoint alert, um, but we do have monitoring and we'll keep improving on it as time goes by. Mm. Yeah, trying not to give everything away, but <laughs> sort of trying to build dashboards so that it's as much of a one tool to go to instead of having to log into four or five different tools to see what's going on with an endpoint. And then maybe if you are drilling into an event to see what happened, maybe there was a piece of malware or maybe somebody's done something they shouldn't have or see who might have accidentally clicked a link and gone to some bad URL. You might then go to a specific tool to use its searching capabilities or its analysis to get more detail. There's a starting point. You don't have to jump between five or more different tools to find that information. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, and, you and, about, yeah, sorry, Kevin, go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think it's important that we also try to follow a lot of Apple's best practices because we do want to have as minimal impact on our end users as possible. And um, if we choose tools that actually play nicely with the Mac OS and they're not a bolt-on <laughs> um, or you know, a very heavy-handed agent, then we have to worry less about those agents causing problems that we have to then, you know, remediate. And so I think that's why some of our strategy is is why I like what the way that we're doing is I can take advantage of a lot of the work that security has already been setting up and then transition that into some of our future plans where we're actually going to use that for um, IT monitoring. Somebody, again, getting ahead of ourselves, we don't want to give everything away from the talk, but um, having something, a dashboard, I think is better than having a single pane of glass. Because single pane of glass means one tool, usually at least it did to you know previous people that I've worked for. And it's like, no, we just kind of put everything that kind of plays well with the Mac that does what it does well. And then because we're using Splunk, it can report into this dashboard. And I can also use that data to help remediate issues that end users are having. So it, it plays really well together. Um, but I think the important part is like we're, we're trying to play within Apple's rules as much as we can because we don't want to break something in order to make it better, quote unquote. Yeah, playing with Apple's rules, uh, we're always to 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 moving uh, moving target. Uh, it's always changing. True. <laughs> <laughs> we're all playing with MDM now when we didn't have to before. Things change very quickly, and the, you know, what we're able to do with MDM, I know in the beginning. Uh, it was de de debating about whether people wanted configuration management or not, and still some people are using configuration management because MDM doesn't do everything, and so you have something like Jam for Monkey that can check settings or apply settings or check states um, 
you know, maybe not quite as, as deterministically as, as say a chef or puppet, but you can still say you want certain things to be and MDM until now to this point doesn't uh, make things the way you want them or doesn't check if something's changed. It just, it's a one, a one payload that you send and you hope for the best. And uh, so uh, we're left with other tools as well to make sure things are good. Um, another question on the security side is, are you guys, uh, does your team allow uh, your work from home users to be admin? Um, how does that uh, apply to your security stance or, you know? That's a really topical question right now. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, at the moment, they are admins, and that's a topic of discussion. There's some uh, standards uh, that recommend against that. As you can imagine, with a distributed remote workforce, that makes it really hard. If, say, their Mac gets stuck after one of those OS updates, I'm sure you've seen the screen, it asks you uh, whether you want to use a startup disk, and you need an admin password. Uh, what are we going to do if they get like that? They can't walk over to the help desk and somebody typed in an admin password. Um, that's going to be some extra levels of complexity. And we're not quite sure yet. We've got to figure that one out over the next couple of months. Um, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, other people uh, have said that, you know, they can be admins with guide rails. Uh, I believe we were talking with Harry from uh, Gusto, and he was saying that, yeah, they have a lot of engineers as um, as, as their uh, users, and so they, they need to give them admin powers, but they have certain guide rails to keep them from falling off the track sort of thing. And, I mean, if you have Splunk and you have logs and you have reporting, then... Yeah, if you can't have one-to-one -one IT to, to your re remote workforce, then you can't help them at every moment. Um, I typically have smaller clients that I visit, and I can anticipate some of their needs or ask them what they need and built it into Monkey into self-service. But if you can't talk to everyone and you can't anticipate all their needs, you can't take the time to build the automation and put it into your self-service, whether it's Jam for Monkey or anything. Um, yeah, and if the people are not there and you don't want to have a thousand tickets, maybe you need to make them admins. But how do you preserve the work tools from either malware actors or from the, themselves? Whether someone Googles some malware by the by accident or clicks on a link, or how do you pr protect the uh, you know the assets, the machine, the clients, the the, the network? Um, these are all good questions, perhaps. Yeah, one thing about the network is that being that it pretty much stops at my desk, we don't have a physical corporate network. So in the case that one machine does get uh, infected or compromised, it usually only remains on that one machine. There's a number of hops or I guess jumps you've got to pass through to, to get to any actual infrastructure, which of course is not physically within the company, it's all virtual. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, we're a little bit lucky in that there is containment and it's not going to spread over a corporate LAN. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, it can make it more difficult to resolve. So far, we've been pretty lucky. I'm going to touch this plastic wood desk here. <laughs> um, that our tools have been able to remediate what they've caught. Uh, but... I'm sure at some point we're going to get hit by something with the increase of malware that is starting to be talked about. Yeah, um, I just remember years ago when the Google Mac Ops team were talking about Beyond Corp, it was pretty edgy stuff years ago. We are talking about beyond the world of firewalls and a corporate network. We're trying, they were trying to treat their endpoints as they were beyond the corporate firewall. So they had to harden them and they had 
you know, um, their own version of Python years ago. They'd bundle it for Monkey, and then they had Puppet, and Puppet would reinstall Monkey. Monkey could reinstall Puppet, and they had a Plan B binary that would reinstall everything if it needed. You know, so they had different levels of protection because um, they assumed everybody was out on their own, and they assumed nation-state actors were attacking every endpoint. Um, and now here we are, all in the same boat. Now all the machines, a lot of people are working from home. A lot of people are out outside the corporate network, and you know, so we're all thinking, how do we protect people's machines? How do we monitor for, for issues? And how do we help and, and or remediate if needed? So, and, and I think that's still relevant even for um, like corporations that are still like an on-prem because not all of their tools are on-prem because they're moving a lot of their tools either to a private cloud or to the general cloud, you know, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of like, okay, great. We have one version of it. And then you have a corp where everything's on prem has the other version of it, and then there's but there's sort of the hybrid. So it's still it's it's a really interesting, complicated question, um, you know, because our biggest thing is we can't prevent our end users from doing anything they need to do, um, and we can't have them go down for any long period of time. But at the same time, we have to keep them secure. It's it's kind of a tightrope that we have to walk. Yeah, and traditionally, corporate IT will want you to stop stop you from doing anything so that that way the machine is the safest. Um, and then the users want to do lots of different things, and there's the bargaining that goes on between the two about what they need to do and um, if they're allowed to do it or through a firewall. or. Yeah, and, and it, it's kind of like, you know, uh, sorry, I'm going to mangle this quote, but life finds a way. And I've noticed that especially when you have a large dev um, community, they will find a way to do what they want to do, and they may break something, making it happen. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's better to. You can't always have a partnership with the dev teams, um, but luckily, you know, we have a really good relationship with our dev team. So it's like they know what they. They don't have to try anything to get away with anything because mm -hmm. they know they're allowed to do what they have to do. So it's in the past I've had to deal with that, and that's very tricky because it's like, okay, they're going to do what they want to do anyways. So yeah. it's, it's like finding that line where everybody's happy. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, not everybody has the luxury of being able to walk up to their users and ask them what they need to do. And sometimes I feel like the embedded IT person that's just helping them do whatever they need to do. I said, what are you guys, what are you trying to do in this video editing team or this marketing team or this team? And what, what are your goals? What are, you, what are your obstacles? And try and build software or talk to people that are responsible for IT elements network or and what are the blockers and trying to help people to do their job because that's why they're there. They're trying to do a job, whatever it is. So sometimes <laughs> IT can be seen as a roadblock or you know, security people are trying to keep everything secure, but they sometimes are a roadblock and they're trying to check compliance check boxes, which are important, but you know, somebody's forgotten to tell them that there's a lot of people trying to do work. So we have to balance these elements of keeping things secure, compliant, and uh, but you know, let people work. <laughs> whatever it is they need to do but so um, what are you guys doing to uh secure that private cloud cloud services i mean that's that you're you're kind of exposed there with the zero trust network type setup right they're remote i'm actually the wrong engineer to even talk <laughs> to that one um we have an amazing cloud sec engineers a few of them and a cloud sec security uh, um, of the security team, uh, maybe I should have invited them to come along too. Well, that that speaks <laughs> volumes. Sure because that, if you'd like. Yeah, well, I mean, it speaks volumes because that means that you actually have a team of people uh, that are dedicated to that, and it, it's not something they're 
just bolting onto your guys' position as well, right? Yeah, I don't think we'd have the bandwidth to try and do that properly, and I, I don't think I have enough experience to even attempt to do that with the type of data Redox is working with. Yeah, and, you know, the company realizes that we almost have to be a very super secure company because of, of what we do. So we don't take any chances with that. And, you know, security is a very big part of the company. And, and, and again, they want to work with IT. They want to work with the developers. They want to work with the rest of the operations team. You know, we want to make sure that everything goes smoothly. So it's, um, again, not to talk too much about the company, but it's, it, it's kind of cool that we do take all that seriously. And like you said, it's not just a bolt on. It's like, you know, we have ded dedicated teams to each part of the uh, different aspects of security. It's pretty cool. We also have an opening in AppSec right now. If anyone's listening and has some strong AppSec skills, we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we've been inviting a lot of security people to Mac DevOps last couple of years. And I think there's a really good, uh, you know, um, crossover and integration possibility. The whole idea of DevOps for me was that developers and operations would work together and in our world, IT and, and security can work together and security should be at all points in app development and in IT, we should always be thinking about it. And while I think about my users and what they need to do, I'm always trying to think about how to keep it secure as well. My users will ask me why we have passwords for things. And I go, well, we have to have passwords, but how do we make things better in the world? Maybe we can have uh, you know, physical tokens or what ways can we make our experiences easier for users rather than having a thousand passwords that they have to rotate every seven days or something. Um, so we, tr we have to make things secure, but also easy and uh, usable for our users. But uh, uh, AppSec, yeah, making applications secure. And so uh, I think uh, there's a lot of people out there, thankfully, uh, white hat hacking and, and contributing what they've learned to other people to make things better. Um, all these security researchers are helping us build better networks by sharing their knowledge uh, um, before giving public talks. <laughs> <laughs> It's always nice when there's a little bit of warning rather than the here it is on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zero wow. days are never fun. No, and you know, sometimes there's the, I'm sure I'm mangling this quote too, something about the you can't distinguish a, a malware actor between a good system and who's trying to automate something. So sometimes we can <laughs> automate ourselves into a worse problem and I think we've had talks at Mac DevOps about, you know, problems you can run into with auto uh, auto package and uh uh, when you automate and you have a, a sort of a pipeline to put things through, you you can run into security issues if you're not checking your supply line and checking your network and checking your processes. And um, it's it's great to automate stuff, but you don't want to don't want to break things really much faster. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes it's knowing the right things to automate um, because I was always a big, huge fan of Auto Packager, and you know, still am. But it's not always the right solution for everything. You know, not to get too specific on one thing you said, but um, I think it really comes down to, because I'm really big on automating the operations team that I work on is really big on automating. We want everything to go smooth so that we can worry about the bigger problems. And it's sometimes knowing what to automate. And we've had a couple of these discussions already. It's like, yeah, we could spend a whole lot of time, but it's not really going to save us a whole lot of time. And then there's always going to be an edge case where we're going to have to go in and do it anyways. So, you know, are we better suited automating this other part that's just annoying and isn't going to cause any problems. You, yeah. you know, it's like picking our battles a little bit. Um, and, and I think that's sometimes important, you know, it's like sometimes just you can do something. It's cool, but in an enterprise situation, maybe you shouldn't. Um, like yeah. you said, sometimes it's hard to tell. It's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, 
I think the idea of the indempotency, the idea that you can have the same result, that you can maybe make the state of your machine the way you want it, or make sure that you can automate the idea that uh, and monitor that everybody has the right Google Chrome app or the Flash update or the certain security update, if you can make sure that, that those updates are pushed out and that you're monitoring and making sure that everyone has them, whether using Monkey, Monkey Report, or Jam for other tools. Um, I mean, for me with Monkey, you know, occasionally a bad update happens, so it's easy to roll back. Um, other people have used Git or GitHub or GitLab or other ways of making sure that they can check in code changes and then check out. And you know, over the years, people have been trying to to implement that into whatever process they're using so that either there's a peer review, maybe Matt decides he wants these apps to go out, but someone else has to peer review it. Um, sometimes you don't have the luxury of a huge team, but you want to have the san be sanity checked by someone else. And um, we need to check why you're pushing Flash still. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, you know, I had to put Flash into my Monkey repo because some people had it. So if I keep the updates in there, then the people that have it they get the updates. And you know, it's surprisingly what apps. When the whole Zoom uh, problem happened, I was like, oh, nobody's using that. We don't use that. And then I looked in my monkey report inventory. I'm like, oh, somebody has that installed somewhere. That's really strange. Well, make sure they get the update then. Um, um, so that's good to know. Um, yeah, if, if people have certain apps, you want them to be updated. But I know other people don't like updating their apps at all in production, and you have to be careful with that. But being able to go back is, is helpful. Um, if if you're a crazy uh, updater like I am and make sure everything is always updated, then you have to be careful to be able to revert that or talk to your users about why they're on the latest version because of security. One of the things that really worries me is a little bit about over-automation. I know nobody wants to hear me say this, but I'm really scared about the day when one of the recipes perhaps gets compromised. Uh, and then instead of doing what we expect, all these enterprises that are making use of that have suddenly become a bot network or have some sort of backdoor installed. Uh, I think that it's great that everybody shares all these resources, but we have to be do that due diligence and be careful to make sure that the scripts that we're, we're getting from other places, we understand what they're doing. We know what each line of that script is doing, or it's from a trusted source. We're validating that we've received a legitimate copy rather than just installing it and deploying it to mm -hmm. however many computers we have, be it a couple of hundred or a few thousand. Um, I remember back when the Sparkle problem happened, and it's like all these apps are coming from trusted places, but you know their libraries weren't trusted because that, that had been, you know, that was where the problem was. So it's like mm -hmm. everything's working great, but if you automate everything, then your testing sort of goes along with your automation. And, and you're not as, you know, I, I've been in situations where it's like everything's automated and okay, well, great. We push it out, didn't see a problem. All right, let's push it out to everybody else. It's like, that's not how I operate, you know? And when you over-automate, you kind of get that over-reliance on everything kind of works. I push the button once and it's good to go. Um, I think the like the way that I like to do it and the way that we've been, you know, trying to design things is is sort of a, like a checks and balances sort of situation where it's like, you know, trust but verify, I guess would be the better way of putting it. That's that's excellent. You have to be able to trust, you have to be able to test and whether you test in production or test in testing and then in production. <laughs> testing's going on somewhere. <laughs> I always liked it when I would walk out of a server room and then hear people screaming and then I'm like, oh, I think I did something. Yep, that's a very quick feedback loop. Uh, 
think I pulled the wrong cable or did the wrong thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you don't always get that verbal scream right in your face when you've done something. So we have to have other methods to uh, check whether we've effed up or not. Um, uh, but definitely, uh, yeah, being cavalier about automation is something to be watchful for. And it's funny because that's that you... one of my big things is automation and innovation. You know, that's sort of been the, the watchwords of, of any team that I've been on. And, but it's exactly that. You have to be careful. I like what Lisa said, you know, over automation is, is sometimes worse than not automating. You can cause more problems. I guess we still have to be careful with our virtual supply chain. Yeah. Well, I mean, the auto package project, they added, uh, you know, a verification and a trusting step. So once you verify your recipes and you can trust them and then you'll be alerted for changes. So I think that was a positive yeah, step yeah. forward in that. Um, it's also a pain in the butt when you have to recheck everything, but um, it's probably a good, a good, uh, a good step and to trust the recipes and um, it's good to, to sanity check your work. Um, definitely. Definitely sometimes just pulling down random scripts and, and, and mashing stuff together also can get us in trouble with that. And, you know, to the point of trusting these tools without having the knowledge to, to verify what they're doing uh, and what we might be implementing and just being able yeah. to verify and having others on the team to kind of, you know, be our backstop and check what's going on. The people that hacked the Jamf network said that Jamf Nation was a great source of scripts for them to mine for hacking their Jamf network and lapse scripts and scripts with like credentials built into them. And uh, uh, it's great that the community shares stuff, but we have to be careful um, as well. And yeah, sanitize your scripts before you share. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Or yeah, find a way to use scripts that don't have credentials built into them somehow. Whether and there was a couple different things they had mentioned there, but or ask for help or yeah, AppSec, security and application development and uh, think about what you're building and how you're building it. And, uh, and whether it's Jamf Nation or Macadvins or what have you, I think we have a pretty good uh, community here of people who are, are like-minded, willing to help step up. I mean, you've had help with your uh, uh, monkey report uh, plugin that you're working on. I've got help with uh, various plugins and scripts that I've worked on and uh it's a it's a really uh good warm community uh and willing to help yeah I, I like to say a lot of times that you know i'm a mac admin because i get to stand on the shoulders of other mac admins you know um it, if, I, if i don't know something the first thing i do is i go to jamf nation or i go online i mean there's tons of different sites i go to but i'll always look first to see if somebody else has had that problem and it's usually not exactly what i've had but it at least puts me in the right direction. And if I have to, you know, jump on Slack. And um, there's always, and I don't know how people have as much time to spend so much time on Slack on, yeah. on the Mac Admins channel, right? We're all it's working like, from I'm home. Always... <laughs> We're all working from home. I still I mean, don't have time to sit there. I still don't have time. No. I mean, it's easier than, I don't know, Googling and or writing blog posts. I mean, when I try and figure out some things, like sometimes, I try to force myself to document it and put it if I think it would help other people or even myself. I mean, Rich Troughton always said, you know, document today for the future you who's asking what the past you was doing. Um, and I've gotten so many emails and even job offers from people who are like, oh, you wrote this thing on your blog. Can you do that for me? I'm like, no, I wrote it down. You do it, you know? And <laughs> I mean, I'm happy with you doing it. It's fine. Um, 
but sometimes I have to refer back to my blog post and if I think it's complicated enough that I'm not going to remember tomorrow what I did because I have to switch hats or I have to figure out a totally different technology, I write, I try to write it down and blog about it and um, yeah, but that takes a lot of time and effort to figure something out and then write out the steps and then put it down. I mean, some people do it uh, all the time and some of us, we just have to stop and trying to do it every now and then when we, there's something we think, even if it's silly or we think it's just too simple, we have to write it down and share it or write your documentation. That's important. Um, well, and documenting your sorry. code. Documenting right. code. Yes. Sorry, Lisa. Sorry, Lisa. No, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Uh, it becomes a commitment. Every now and again, I still get a DM about some script that I wrote five or six years ago for a completely different environment, and I don't even remember what I did at the time. And then if I feel like it, I might help the person. I go back and it's like, oh, my gosh, I wrote that code. That code is awful. Which was a purge button. I could just purge everything I wrote <laughs> more than X many years ago because clearly it wasn't very good code to begin with anyway. If you're still using that code, Please, please don't, because I haven't tested it since ten dot whatever version that was at the time. So that's that's the other difficulty with this. It's great to share and help, but uh, there comes a point where it needs to expire, just so that you don't get yourself in trouble with a different OS that behaves differently. Yeah, I mean, with the Monkey Report plugin I built in recently, I was asking for help on the Slack, and then you know John Crane, one of the developers, was like, "Oh, I just put it on GitHub and I'll look at it." So I, I'm like, "Oh yeah, of course, I have a GitHub accounts. So I put it on GitHub, and then he was able to to grab a copy, look at it, and then make a pull request with his changes, and that was really nice. And you know, if it's on GitHub or somewhere like that, you can make it disappear if it's not good later. <laughs> but you can also share with other people if it's if public code, or you know, you can also have a private repository as well. But that can work sometimes really nice when you're you're 99% of the way there and you need some help. Someone can make a pull request and do some fixes for you. And I'm like, this should work. I don't know why it's not. And so I thank those people that, that reach out and help those of us who are struggling at that last bit or maybe in the middle too. But. <laughs> and, and those companies where you're fortunate enough to share your code. Mm -hmm. um, because I know some companies are very open about that. You know, um, I've had discussions in the past where it's like, you know that most of these scripts that we're writing are not 100% original because they're, you know, oh, this one chunk of the script is something that I found online and then I wrote the rest of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not like it's, you know, proprietary or anything. And like, nope, you can't share that because that's, you know, work product. I'm like, well, technically, but, you know, so I'm, I'm really glad that there are companies out there that do allow that um, because it really gives a lot back to the community. Um, because I don't know of any Mac admin I've ever interacted with that hasn't got something from, you know, a, a Git repository or, uh, you know, some website, some blog posting, you know, it's, and, and I like that there's that community sense that people do want to share. Cause like, Hey, I figured out, and it's not just because, Hey, I figured out something cool and I want to show it off. It's like, if I figure this out, there's probably somebody else that needs to figure this out and mm -hmm. I can get them a step ahead so they don't have to work as hard as I did. And yeah. I love that. I love that. And when I you put can these make... five things from Stack Overflow together and made a script that I want to share with the rest of the community, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a work of art. I mean, the great thing about going to a conference, whether it's Mac DevOps or any other conference, is that you can meet some people that have influenced your life. I mean, the first time I met Rusty Myers, uh, and he'd written some script I was using with Deploy Studio years and years and years ago. I just wanted to give him a big hug because I was like, you saved my life. You wrote this one script that I use. And if you can go to a conference and meet people or see uh, 
have a, a hear a good talk and or a quick talk and have this really good idea shared with you and you can talk to those people that really helps and then you can discuss that and find more help or once you've able to talk to them then you can reach out to them through slack or other means and maybe not feel so nervous to talk to them because now you've met them in person and that really helps to to break the ice a little bit and go oh remember we met and I talked and you were super helpful and I really would like a little bit of help but I'll try not to overwhelm you <laughs> you know in, in that sense I'll, I'll kind of do an unabashed plug for um, the Jamf user group in New York City. So the NYC Metro Jamf user group. So um, we've been, wow, we've been meeting for, for over five years now. And that's like, I think why people come to it is there's that sense of, mm. you know, community. Um, you know, there's lots of different user groups out there. And, you know, um, we're just lucky that, you know, New York has such a large number of Mac admins so that we can have a pretty, you know, vibrant community. And it really is, as much as it is for networking, it's also for that same thing. It's like you get to meet people that probably have the same problems you do. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a couple of people who are, you know, public and, you know, they, they'll post stuff. And then a lot of people that don't. But when you're in the room, your corporate policies of sharing code or whatever doesn't really qualify anymore. So people are able to speak freely. Um, there was a long time where I couldn't say where I worked, even though I hosted it. Um, but, you know... I, once we were there and, you know, together, you work through problems, you know, you, it's like presentations and things are cool, but it's the question and answer sessions that I think a lot of people come for. And, yeah. Um, that, you know, that hallway track. Everybody can go to a conference. Yeah, and, no, I mean, local meetups, big shout out for local meetups, wherever you are in any city, everywhere around the world. And I mean, conferences, you know, start with the idea of a meetup. I mean, I did yeah. my ops to do something for Vancouver and Seattle, Cascadia and just you know, it's just I trying to get people together and it's not to, to be the one conference that's the best of everything. It's just trying to encourage people to get together and we need them everywhere. We need local meetups. I mean, you know, it's a huge, huge shout out to everybody that organizes them in their local cities. And um, we need more meetups. We need people to get together and help. And not all of us went to school to learn what we do. <laughs> uh, I didn't. I'm just sort of figuring it out as I go. And yeah, mailing lists and, you know, Slack and websites and blogs and conferences, just learning as much as we can. And and uh, yeah, thank you to everybody that organizes meetups. Uh, you you are awesome. Very much second that. The New York meetup when I lived there was was great. Just to be able to meet all those peers in the industry, bounce ideas off them when I was stuck. And some of the people I met there have been so helpful for me in, in my own career. And then being relocated down to Northern Virginia, the Mac DMV community on the occasions that I'm actually able to get to one of their events have been so welcoming. Like I, I really appreciated that. Like also as a, as a foreigner, it's, it's hard to come to a new place and meet new people. And I've had to do that a few times in my life. So this community has been great. That's awesome. That's awesome. One of the big things about working remote is fostering a remote culture. And um, I've worked on remote teams where, you know, we had teams in different parts of the country. And um, one of the big things is to make time to talk, you know, have working sessions. And we always had them quote unquote working sessions because there was always a portion of that working session where you're not working. But if you think about when you're in an office, there are times of your day where you're not working, you know, you've got the, um, you know, coffee machine or whatever, and you go and you just sort of chit chat. And I think that happens to a lot of people where you feel stir crazy when you're working from home because you don't have that like outlet. And so we're lucky that Redox has a lot of Slack channels that are not work related. And the whole point is 
contribute in there, you know, go let off some steam, meet the people you work with. And I think that's an important part to the discussion of like working remote is making sure that people don't feel like they're cooped up in their house because I mean, showing, part of showing up to an office is hearing about such and such person's daughter and such and such person's like family's huge accomplishments or their trip or um, their retirement plans or, you know, uh, some of it you don't want to hear and some of it you want to hear. And it's just that social interaction, <laughs> that glue that keeps people together. And, you know, you want to find out more about these people or they'll tell you anyway. And so how do you how do you do that remotely? And, and that sort of idle chit chat. Um, it's important. Uh, yeah, how do you do that? Is that just another Slack channel, or how do you how do you keep multiples. it? Multiple Slack channels. <laughs> Multiple Slack channels. Yeah, like like Lisa and I were talking about this earlier. You know, we have kind of two things that we do, and one is we just have hobby channels in Slack, and the whole point is just to have that kind of like you know virtual get together stuff. Um, something that I don't think it's just just us, but there's a a donut app or something. Somebody just told me about it. I haven't um, tried it yet. I don't know what it I is. haven't tried it either. But basically, you sign up to, into this app, and it randomly hooks you up with another person in your company. And I about that. it yeah. schedules you for a time, and you just spend 15, 20, half an hour, whatever it is you do, just talking as if you were in the break room, and that person walks in the break room. It's just a bit of a scheduled thing. Kind of a cool idea. But no donuts? Um, I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> you had me a donut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I read it in I read about that in an article a little while ago. It has a really cool Slack integration, right? Where it like makes a channel with you and the other person so you can schedule yep. the time and yeah, I heard about that. Wow, maybe yeah. I'll maybe I'll 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 implement that. <laughs> yeah, I think one of our project managers kind of got that going if I remember correctly. I you haven't tried it yet, Lisa, have you? I haven't tried it. I saw someone talking about it. That's literally all I know. Yeah. But yeah, so it's like those things that are kind of important to a remote culture, I think. Um, I think the channel where we share pictures of our dogs are my favorite. It's yes. really good distraction during the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you break up your day? Do you have a schedule like on the wall or do you say 15 minutes of work, half an hour of like dog channel or how do you, how do you break up your day? Like to keep focused? Uh... Uh, we have a lot of freedom, so being on the east coast i actually exercise before work i go skate and then i come back and start work usually maybe 10 o'clock and then stop when i feel like it if i want to take a break for lunch it they don't seem to care as long as we get our work done and if we need to be on a meeting we turn up it's it's actually really nice to be treated like an adult yeah and and, and i think that's the biggest problem with a lot of companies going remote and we actually had um, had this experience on previous teams where half the team was on one side of the country, the other half the team was on the other side of the country. It's like, does it really matter if we're in the office or not? Because we're not actually in the same room together. And it came down to, well, somebody likes to see people sitting at desks. Is it ever is it easier if everybody's remote? Because I know in some hybrid yeah. situations it might be, oh, some people are working remote, some people are in the office, it's kind of weird or... I've heard from other people that, well, we don't want you working remote because we've justified to managers that we spent this money on sort of physical infrastructure, either rooms or chairs or a sand or storage. You know, if you're working remote, you're not utilizing that infrastructure or those rooms or, uh, you know, there's maybe different reasons uh, pro and against. So our leaders actually did a live stream today. Um, and I think we don't have that 
sort of trouble because it's been that way from the start. I think maybe if I'm making an assumption here, the, the culture change partway through, there might be some of that going on, but it's, it's just always been this way. So there's no expectation or no fancy furniture. They want to make sure that they can get adequate use of. Yeah. It was an adjustment at first, but it's been pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And, and like, I'll repeat things, some things that a lot of people say when they give the tips about how to work from home, it's to have a schedule. I mean, maybe for some people you don't need the schedule, but having that routine and that schedule um, you know, so going to work is for me is no different. I just don't have to take the train into the New York. You know, I, I get a much shorter commute across the living room into my office and that's it, you know? So, but I think that's the biggest thing. And I've talked to a lot of people who work remote and as long as you can sort of like, you know, dedicate your day. Okay. This is my work day. Fortunately, I have flexibility if I need it, but at least I have that structure in place, you know, and, when you have that, it makes things a lot easier. You know, I walk my dog before I go to work and I even say I'm going to work. You know what I mean? So in my head, it's still work. It's like, I'm not really home. Um, and at the end of the day, I walk my dog. So it's like, that's my start and stop of the day. So it's, it's the routine helps a lot having a routine. And if you don't, before you start, you sort of build one up, you know, as, as you're working from home. It's, but I think that's really important. It beats uh, commuting for two hours or something to get into a large metropolis uh, from your <laughs> suburban home far, far away, or definitely working from home. Uh, if you get a, you catch a cold, you don't make all your coworkers sick. Uh, I've had the flu from people that have just refused to stay home, or they don't get paid if they don't, you know, they don't come into work. So right, and then you, you know, so it, it can happen, right? Um, so there's advantages of being at home. <laughs> I mean, the disadvantage is you're a little easier to be distracted, but if you kind of have your routine and your regimen, that sort of helps a little bit. And the other thing is, I think we're lucky, where at least when I work, is that, you know, our leadership knows that everybody's distributed and that's an advantage to us. Mm -hmm. And so when, like Lisa said, when you treat people like adults, people tend to act like adults and, you know, it's, it, it works. And how do you end your workday? Uh, I mean, I used to be a visual effects admin and sometimes the worst was 20 hours on site a day. And that was, you know, crazy. And when I started working for myself, you know, maybe you're working 10, you know, 10, 12, 16, 20 hours a day, but you're wherever you want to be. I can be with my kids, but I'm on my phone all the time with our cell phones and Slack. We're always engaged and, oh, let me answer this email right now. It's really important. I mean, maybe my excuse is always like, oh, they're in Europe. So there's nine hour time difference. I have to answer this email now before they go to bed. And I just woke up and, you know, but the kids always see me plugged into my phone and not, you know, maybe not always hanging out with them. So how do you disconnect? How do you, you know? Well, each afternoon, most afternoons, not each afternoon, Kevin and I usually have to do a brief catch up because our work overlaps a bit. Usually halfway through uh, my dog is jumping on me, reminding me that it's time to go for a walk and have some food. So that's a physical reminder that I have to stop working. But I will admit I'm often guilty of then getting my phone or my laptop later and doing some more. Some of that is not because they're wanting me to. I I just feel like having made a like a career shift into security, I, I just don't feel like I'm at the level I need to be yet. And so I put a little bit more on myself to try to step up a bit or to learn some more so that I feel like I'm contributing at the level I want to contribute is 
I appreciate that they took a chance on me because I, I just didn't have InfoSec experience. I'm still learning every day. I think it's important that the company also realizes that like they don't expect us to work 24 seven just because we're not in the office, you know, and that time every once in a while, like I just had one the other day where I did have to work late or like, you know, oh, I'm just finishing dinner. Something happened. I better go take care of this. I don't mind doing it because it doesn't happen all the time. I'm not expected to drop what I'm doing all the time and respond to these things. So it, it kind of has to come down from the top. Um, you know, it's easy to do when you have an office. If nobody's sitting at a desk, then nothing's getting done. But if somebody's on call 24-7, you sort of dread it. And I don't know about Lisa, but I don't dread working remote, working from home. I love it. You got part cut. of that is because they respect my time as well. Yeah, I love not driving an hour and a half each way into D.C. Well, thank you both so much for uh, coming to, uh, to this podcast, coming together virtually. We've learned a lot about... Uh, uh, working from home and uh, the challenges that uh, you have to work on. And um, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having us very much. And we're looking forward to the, the conference. Awesome. Yeah, again, thank you very much for having us. Um, and we'll have a lot more detail of some of the things that we sort of hinted at. Like I said, we didn't want to spoil everything. We might have to deck. Maybe. Um, <laughs> the discussion's only just started. Working from home is a, is a big topic, and I know a lot of people are very interested about how to secure your workforce and all the uh, intricate details about how to make work from home work. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, let's talk again soon. Great. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I want to thank our amazing sponsors from MacDevOps YVR 2020. Uh, we couldn't do it without your help and support. Our platinum sponsor, Mac Stadium, thank you so much. You helped us last year. You're helping us this year. You're just amazing people to work with. Our gold sponsor, Sauce Labs from Vancouver, uh, thank you so much. Uh, your support means a lot to us. And uh, Simple MDM, our silver sponsor this year. Every year you've been sponsoring us. Uh, thank you so much. Huge shout out to all three. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests and co-hosts. Mac DevOps Podcast is a brainchild of Matt X and Chris Johnson. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. Oh, Josie's excited. Are we going to play cards now? We just. <laughs> I've got backdoors and breaches. What do you have? Bridges and... Uh, backdoors and breaches. Oh, what's that? It's a new InfoSec card game for oh, a breach simulation. Right. It's kind of fun. That sounds cool. Uh, Josie, this is my daughter, uh, Josie. She loves card games. Hi. Du bonjour. Uh, jo oh. JD was teaching her poker. Thanks, JD. <laughs> <laughs>